This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you could please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And all joking aside, uh, my wife's like, Jeff, don't bring that towel up there. And like, how are you going to transition from that to preaching God's word? Here's the transition. Uh, I'll tell you what I told the team. Uh, when we experience joy on earth, that's a good gift from God. And, and it's a good gift that is to be enjoyed. But every joy that we experience on earth is but an appetizer of a greater joy to come. And so when we experience joy, and let me tell you, there was a lot of joy yesterday. Uh, as we experience joy, I think there's going to be a lot of joy after the Eagles game tonight as well. Uh, as we experience joy, those joys are meant to point us to an even greater joy, which doesn't diminish the joy that we're feeling, but reminds us that there are deeper spiritual realities at play. And so Christians, we should be the most joyful people in the world as we enjoy the good gifts that God has given that point to us too, the giver of all those good gifts. And so with that in mind, we're going to be starting a new series this morning uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. But looking at one specific theme, we're going to be looking at what the Gospel of Matthew has to teach us about the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God. Our theme this year has been living with confidence in the God of providence. Providence means that God is in control of all things at all times. And as we understand that God is in control of all things at all times, that he's the God of providence, that should lead us to engage life and whatever life throws our way with a lot of confidence. We started this year with a series called Untwisting the Truth. And we're like, if God's in control of all things, that means he's the one who has to define how we think about cultural issues. We don't get to define that for ourselves. And we can live confidently in what God says, even when that goes against what the culture might be saying. We, we did a series in the book of Esther where we saw a broken kingdom full of sin and oppression, helpless and hopeless, and yet God was in control. And even through what seemed like ruin, all those things were being set up to bring about his glorious redemption. We just finished a lengthy series in the book of 1 Peter where we looked at this theme of exiles, the idea that as followers of Jesus, we are not from this world, but we're going to live in another place forever. And because God is in control of all things at all times, he, he's going to make sure we get there. And so we can live with hope as we travel as exiles through this life. We have Advent coming up, the celebration of Christmas, which is what? It's the celebration of the coming of God's king. God made these great promises about a coming king, and because God's in control of all things at all times, he makes all of his promises come to pass. And so his promises have come true in Jesus. And so the hope in this series in the kingdom of God is kind of pull all these different threads together, to pull these different threads together. Jesus said that we are to pray for God's kingdom to come. Jesus said that we are to pursue God's kingdom above all other things. Jesus said that we're to seek it, to treasure it, to live for it. But what is it? What is it? What is the kingdom of God? I think, actually, we don't always have good answers for that. My hope is by then, the end of these five-week series, that we'll have very good answers for that. Over these next five weeks, we're going to be seeing what the Gospel of Matthew has to say about God's kingdom. And Matthew really is the best place to go in the Bible to address this topic uh, because in its 28 chapters, it speaks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus uses both those terms interchangeably. I'll be showing us that in a minute. 
uh, Jesus, in, in those 28 chapters, Jesus talks about these things 50 different times. Um, when the Bible is repeating something, it's trying to get our attention. And so Matthew is very much trying to make a point about what the kingdom of God is. And so today we're going to look at the kingdom proclaimed. Next week will be kingdom passion. Then we'll look at kingdom purpose, kingdom power, and then finally kingdom preparedness. And what we're going to see as we go through this series is that God's kingdom is a cosmic story. It's a true story, an ongoing story that answers really the biggest questions of life. Questions like, why are we here? What is life about? What's wrong with the world? What is our hope in the midst of these things that are so wrong? Where are things going? How will things end? How we answer those questions will profoundly shape our lives. Those questions are all answered through understanding the kingdom of God. So let's turn our attention to God's word, reading in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17, uh, verse 12 through 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, so speaking of Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken about by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you bow your heads with me now in a word of prayer? God, we praise we just read your word, that you would now bless the preaching of it. I pray by the same spirit that inspired Matthew to write these things, that spirit would now be present with us to help us to see these things, help us to see the spiritual truth that you have present for us through your words. God, we want to come to you with hearts that are humble and open to what you have to say. And so I pray you'd meet us in this time. Meet us in this whole series, Lord God. Should you not return, and should we get through all five weeks, Lord, I do pray that our understanding of your kingdom would grow, and that our lives would be changed more as a result, and that you would be greatly treasured in our hearts for the good of our souls and the praise of your name. We dedicate this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is Jesus' first sermon that he gave in the Gospel of Matthew, and it will be his most consistent. He says again and again throughout this Gospel, the kingdom of God has come. Now what this passage is telling us is that Jesus' message about the kingdom was not a new thing, but was a fulfillment of a very old thing. Matthew quotes a prophecy from the prophet named Isaiah, who was writing roughly about a thousand years before Jesus came. It's saying that, that a light would shine out in the darkness. That's a prophetic way of saying that something that was hidden would now be revealed. A light would shine, and it would not shine where you'd expect it. This, this revelation of God would not come in Jerusalem, where God's temple was, nor would come in Judah, where, where the kings of old came from. No, this light would go and would shine forth in the Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a Bible way of saying this is a place where no one wanted anything to do with God. This is a land that dwelt in spiritual 
darkness. But it was into the darkness that the light of God came. It was into these people who had wanted nothing to do with God that God in the flesh first preached about how he had come because he had something he wanted to do with them. And to see what Jesus is saying here, I think we really need to ask two questions. One, what is the kingdom of God? And two, what does that have to do with our lives now? What does the kingdom of God and what does God's kingdom mean for us now? First, what is the kingdom of God? When Jesus uses this phrase, kingdom of God, he's using a phrase that had massive meaning for the ancient Israelites who were first hearing him use it. It, was not, it, was not new, it might be new to us to hear these things. It was not new to them. God's kingdom is spoken about in the very first words, the very first chapter, of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, when God's revealed as the creator of all existence. He speaks and says, let there be light. And his divine word is immediately fulfilled. And we read that and we think it's just a creation story, but there is so much more going on. Commentator Nicholas Perrin helps us understand what's happening to the ancient readers when he says the first readers of Genesis would have understood this right away. In speaking creation into existence, God is acting like a king. God is not just a king, but the king of the cosmos. When we, we see kingdom language here in the very first words of the Bible is God speaks and the world that he makes obeys. Later in Genesis chapter 1, God creates man and woman in his image. And to be an image bearer is a re, was a regal term. In the ancient world, when a king wanted to promote his agenda in a foreign land, he would send someone who would bear his image, usually some kind of seal. And this image bearer would then speak and act on the king's behalf. So by calling humanity God's image bearers, God's showing that he's the king. And our purpose in life is to represent his kingdom on this earth. And so when we think of kingdom, I, I think, you know, typically we might think of some specific place or some, some realm, right? The kingdom of, of England, for example. And God's place does, God, God's kingdom does take, take place in a place. <laughs> he, he, he makes Adam and Eve and he puts them in a, in a garden of Eden. But God's kingdom is not just a place. In our call to worship, we read this in Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Think about this. It won't make sense to say his place rules over all. It won't make sense to say that his realm rules. A place and a realm is an inanimate object. It can't rule anything. A place can't take action. This is an action word. And so God's, God's kingdom is about an action. It's about him exerting his rule. If you think about the word kingdom, the end of that word is the Latin root dom, which means a state of being. And so think about boredom, it's the state of being bored. Freedom, the state of being free. Fandom, state of being a fan. I think we had that well represented for us in our music team this morning. Uh, it looked like Christmas up here with all the red and the green. Um, kingdom, it, it's, a state, it's a state of being. It's a state of being ruled. And so this is why Jesus calls God's kingdom the kingdom of heaven, because God certainly rules in heaven, but God's rule is not meant to be limited to heaven. God wants to establish his rule on earth. And so God makes his people, and he puts them in his place in the Garden of Eden, and he gives them a purpose to represent him to the world. They are to follow his rule, to live for the good of what he says. And so if I were to capture God's kingdom in one place, in one phrase, I really think that theologian Graham Goldsworthy says it well when he says that God's kingdom is, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
Think about the kingdom of God. That's what should come to our mind. It's, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And this kingdom in the first two chapters in Genesis is described as a paradise. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no injustice. There's no harm. There's no getting over on people. I'm pretty sure there's no mosquitoes. There's complete and full human flourishing because that's what happens when God's people live in God's place under God's rule. Yet as soon as we see God's kingdom established, we see an enemy to God's kingdom arise. In Genesis chapter 3, the king of evil, Satan, comes. Now in our western secular world, we turn up our noses at the idea of a spiritual realm and the idea of Satan. We think that's just old, silly, ancient Bible talk. But the reality is most of the world currently today believes in a conflict that exists in a spiritual realm between good and evil. And so I think as Americans, we just have to get over ourselves a little bit. Uh, and I, I could take you on a whole tour of what that looks like in other cultures. But, but before I do that, I, I, instead of doing that, I think it's actually more helpful to think about it this way. Instead of giving you like a historical, sociological tour on, on how we can be very certain that the spiritual realm exists, uh, I just want you to think about this, this kind of philosophically and abstractly for a moment. Uh, if we don't believe there's such a thing as evil spirits, if we don't believe that there's such a thing as demons, you know what happens? We end up demonizing other people. They become the enemy and the source of all evil. You don't believe me, just wait until 2024 and hear about people who are going to talk about one another as they vote for different candidates. How much of our anger and angst that we're experiencing right now in this polarizing society that we live in is coming because we view people who are on the other side, those people, as the root of all evil because we have no other explanation for what could be evil. We don't believe in demons and so we demonize other people. But scripture while teaching that we certainly have moral responsibility for our choices, it also gives us a basis for compassion to have with one another. Because Scripture says that we have a common enemy who wants to lie, steal, and destroy. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, that that's what Satan has been doing since the very beginning. And so in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes and he lies to Adam and Eve about the goodness of God. Because he wants to steal their joy and destroy God's kingdom. So he tempts them to feel like God's holding out on them, that they should give into their desires instead of trusting that God's commands are for their good. And so tragically, Adam and Eve choose to listen to the enemy's lies, and they rebel against God's rule. They do what feels right by them instead of doing what God had made them for, which was to live by what's right by him. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin might not always be doing a bad thing. At the heart of it, it's just doing my own thing. Sin is saying to God, not your will be done, but my will be done. And so we're beginning to see how this story maps on to our story. The lie of Satan is still very present today, isn't it? I mean, isn't one of the prevailing ethics of our culture? Be true to you and however you want to be. And we are still breaking God's heart because he's created us to live as true to him and how he has made us to be as his people. God's kingdom has fallen and the beautiful place of harmony that God created humanity to enjoy has become a cursed world that we all now live in. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is the world is rebelling against the God who made it. We see this re rebellion present in nature. 
for example, rain that was supposed to bring forth life can now turn into hurricanes that amass death. We see rebellion in human nature. For example, the beautiful diversity of different ethnicities that God created to be enjoyed are used and said to justify racism, hatred, and injustice. This world's a broken place, and we're a broken people as we rebel against the God who made us. But God is too great a God to let that be the end of his story. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, 15, he promises that he will send a rescuer who will come and crush Satan under his feet, destroying the sickness of sin that God's enemy had brought into this world. In Genesis chapter 12, God takes a man named Abram and says, I'm going to make you into someone through which the whole world will be blessed. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, he takes the Israelite King David and says, the blessing I want to bring to the world, it's going to come through your line. I'm going to, I'm going to establish your throne forever. My rescuer is going to come through you. And then through the prophet Isaiah and Daniel, God says, this rescuer is going to be my very own son. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we often read around Christmas time, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or in Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And all this leads to the book of Matthew, who starts his gospel account with a genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage back to David, and then back to Abraham. Through this, he is signaling that the one who would bring God's blessings to the nations promised to Abraham, and the one who would bring God's kingdom they promised to David, that one has come. The Son of Man, whose kingdom will reign forever, he is here. And so, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king has arrived. Jesus himself embodies the kingdom of God. Jesus is fully and perfectly God's people in God's place and under God's rule. Jesus is the perfect person of God. He is the better Adam who did not fall prey to Satan's lies when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, but instead showed victory as he stays true to his father's will. He is the one who on the night before he died, as he contemplated the horrors of the cross and his desire to be free from it, he cried out in submissive obedience, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is God's perfect person. And Jesus is God's perfect place. The place where people can go to meet with God is not a geographical location. No, Jesus is where we go to meet and be with God for Jesus himself is God. 
This is why he said in John chapter 4 to the woman in Samaria at the well that God was no longer going to be worshipped in a temple in Jerusalem, nor was he going to be worshipped on Mount Carmel in Samaria. He said what? God will be worshipped in spirit and truth. And then he said what? I'm the truth. (laughs) Jesus is the place where we go to meet with God. He is the very presence of God, the true temple of God. He is God's place. And one day, for anyone who put our trust in him, we can... We can spiritually be with him now, and one day we'll dwell with him face to face forever in heaven. Jesus is God's perfect person. Jesus is God's place. And Jesus came to bring God's rule. He did not say to his disciples, just say a prayer and ask me into your heart. No, he said, lay down your life and follow me. He said, give your life to me. Matthew 10, verse 19. Follow me. Matthew 4, verse 19. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. John chapter 14, verse 15. And then he gave his disciples the power to live according to his rule by sending the Holy Spirit to create in their hearts and to create in the hearts of anyone who puts their faith in him, to create in our hearts today, your heart today, if you have placed your faith in Christ, a desire to want to follow God and the ability to want to follow God. And so we think of God's kingdom, friends, what really should come to our mind is not just God's people and God's place and under God's rule. Ultimately, it should be all those things as embodied by Jesus. Jesus should come to our mind. As we read the gospel accounts about Jesus' life and we see him healing diseases and driving out demons and removing burdens of guilt and shame and forgiving sin and calling sinners his friends and then going to the cross and dying in our place as a judgment for our sin and then rising to new life to prove his victory over death. In all those things, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are seeing God's kingdom in action. When we hear kingdom. We're not to imagine this kind of palace in the sky. No, we're to think about the person of Jesus bringing the beauty of redemption into a world broken by sin. As the Nigerian theologian Victor Babanjade Cole says, Jesus' very presence, his very presence brought the kingdom near. And this is why after Jesus leaves earth, the New Testament actually doesn't talk much about God's kingdom. But regularly declares what? That Jesus is Lord. Jesus spent his whole life, death and resurrection, showing that he is the king. And so when he ascends to his throne on high in heaven, the focus shifts from his teaching on God's kingdom to teaching about God's king who had come. See, the good news of the kingdom that Jesus preached in the New Testament becomes the good news that Jesus is Lord. And in him there is forgiveness of sin. In him there is healing. In him there is freedom. In him there is eternal life. And so as Christians, as Jesus' followers, as his disciples, we are those who live now in God's kingdom. God's kingdom has come and it is experienced by everyone who says, Jesus is my Lord. You know, this is why the Roman Empire was so against Christianity. It wasn't because the Christians in that time were nice, loving people who did good social things. No one minds anyone who's a nice, loving person who does good social things. It was because they recognized that Christians couldn't be controlled by allegiance to the empire because they had a different king. And they wouldn't take their orders from Rome, but instead did what the Bible said, and that was very threatening to Rome. For us today, I wonder, are we taking our orders from Rome? Or are we pledging our allegiance to our kingdom? our true kingdom, 
You know, parts of our culture want us to pledge allegiance to a kingdom of self. We, we live where we have to affirm that whatever a person feels, so they have a right to be. But as Christians, we must say, no, Jesus is Lord. And so he is the one who has the authority to define us. Other parts of our culture want us to pledge allegiance to the kingdom of America. Let's make this a Christian nation. And listen, I love our country. I'm so grateful to live here. And maybe you have to pledge your allegiance to the flag, American flag every day. I'm not talking about that. There can be different opinions about the appropriateness of that act. But as God's kingdom people, we need to be clear that our ultimate allegiance is not to the American flag, but to our king. We gather as Christians in our churches, if you notice, we don't have a flag in our church. Not because we don't love our country, but because we gather as Christians not under a flag of America, but under the cross of Jesus Christ. We are not here to promote any political party's agenda, but instead to advance the purposes of our king. We're not looking to make America a Christian nation as if it ever was and as if it ever could be. No, we're looking to be a Christian nation within the church. We're looking to live here for God's kingdom purposes and by God's grace have an influence on the world around us. We come together and we live under the authority of one thing and one thing only and that is saying that Jesus is Lord. And so what that means is we are to come together and we're to come under the authority of God's word and say, God, through these words that you've inspired to be written, through these words that come directly from your heart through humans, but to us as if they were your very words, Lord, show us who you are. Show us what you say. Teach us, lead us, guide us. You're our king. We want to listen to you. And so when the world looks at the church, it should be seeing a glimpse of what it looks like for God's reign to exist on earth as it does in heaven. They should say, oh, that's what it looks like when people have love instead of hate. Oh, that's what it looks like when a community functions where people are treated with dignity regardless of their social status. Oh, that's what it looks like when power is used not to coerce, but to serve. Oh, that's what it looks like when you truly forgive someone and make things right. The, the church should be a billboard, friends, for the kingdom of God and the good of what living under his rule looks like. But it's only a billboard. Let's be honest, sometimes that billboard can look a little tattered. It's only a billboard. It's only a sneak preview of an even better coming attraction. The kingdom of God, I think, is something that we can think about it kind of like the ending of World War II. In World War II, if you're familiar with that war, the, the war was essentially over once the D-Day invasion was successful. The, that victory marked the decisive defeat of the enemy. But final victory was not declared until 336 days later when the German army finally surrendered. And so Jesus' first coming is the D-Day for sin, Satan, and death. Make no mistake, friends, they have been decisively defeated. God's kingdom is here. But it has not yet fully arrived. Sin, Satan, and death, though defeated, they're still messing around and screwing up this place, aren't they? But there's a day coming when our king will return. And on that day, God's righteous, 
beautiful, harmonious rule will be established once and for all as all is made new in him. Revelation chapter 21 says that the end of all things is God making a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to be a totally restored existence, ridding this world of evil once and for all, where we finally and fully will get to be able to live in the good of being God's people in the place of God's presence under his rule forever to the eternal joy of our souls and the glory of his name. Oh, what a day that will be. So God's kingdom has come, and the good news is also still coming. And so from Genesis to Revelation, God's been telling us a story of his kingdom that, 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 that has come and is coming through his great king, Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this story of what God has been doing and what God is doing? How is this meant to intersect with our lives now here in South Philadelphia in the year 2022? What does the kingdom of God mean for us now? Well, Jesus tells us in one word how we should respond to his teaching about the kingdom of God. Verse 17, what does he say? Repent. Let's repent. We think about the kingdom of God, how that should intersect with our lives, is it should make us a repentant people. Theologian D.A. Carson helps us understand what this word repentance means when he comments on this verse and writes, Repentance is a radical transformation of the entire person. A fundamental turnaround involving mind and action. You see, the condition in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose to live on their own terms, that condition, that proclivity, that innate desire is now present in each one of us. In the words of Lady Gaga, we were born this way. We were born to live for ourselves, to live self-defined lives instead of joyfully living under God's good rules. But, but Jesus shows up and says, I'm the king. And so that confronts us with a choice. Will we continue to live in our little kingdoms of self-definition or will we give ourselves to being under his reign? Listen, Jesus did not show up to be a cosmic genie here to grant our wishes. He, he did not show up to be a divine cheerleader here to tell us how great we are he did not sh show up to be a heavenly firefighter here to save us from all the troubles we go through in life no he showed up and said he is the lord and he doesn't ask us to in simply invite him into our hearts no he calls us to bend our knees to his rule and submit our lives to him Th this repentance it's, it's a one-time thing when we place our faith in jesus as we make a decisive turn yes i now believe in you I used to not, but now I do, and I want to go your way. It's a one-time thing, but it's also then meant to be an ongoing lifestyle. It's, it's, it's the choice to turn from kingdom of God, uh, self to kingdom of God when we become Christians for the first time. And it's the ongoing choice of a Christian. It's the ongoing choice of a disciple to continue to live in the daily grind of fighting our sin and choosing to follow our Savior. And so every day is a day where we wake up with a battle of where are we going to pledge our allegiance in our hearts. The life of a Christian is a life of daily repentance. Am I going to live my way? Or am I going to live for God's righteous ways? You know, I think it can be thought of like this as we, we consider how we interact with this idea of repentance. I think sometimes we, we're, it's like we're going down the highway of life, living our life, doing our thing. And we see Jesus on the side of the road. We have some kind of encounter with Jesus. And, and sometimes it can be, hey, Jesus, would you mind getting in the back trunk of my car? 
Like, we want to have him there because as we go through life doing our thing, it's nice to know we got someone in the back that when, you know, a tire pops off, hey, I got my mechanic right with me. Gia's pops out. He puts the tire back on. We keep going and doing our own thing. It's great as long as he gets back in the trunk and makes sure he knows his place. Or sometimes you're like, well, that's a little too, you know, utilitarian. That's like, you know, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so we let Jesus in the back seat of the car. We want to be close to him, have our close personal relationship with Jesus. And so we like spending time with him. We like talking with him. But we're the ones who are still directing our lives. We're the ones who are still in the driver's seat. We're the ones who are still controlling where we're going. And so Jesus can talk with us and be with us, but he better not tell us where to go because no one likes a backseat driver. This is not what Christ calls us to. Christ says, get out of the car. And you get in the back seat. And I'd love to have a relationship with you. I want to be close with you. I want to talk with you. I want to spend time with you. I want us to know one another. But let's be very clear. I'm the one who's supposed to be directing your life. I'm the one who's supposed to be showing us the way to go. We can have a relationship. But let's be clear. Jesus says to us, I don't like any backseat driving. Now, as we think about that, here's what we have to understand. Here's the good news of this. Jesus is a whole lot better driver than we are. Like, like how often we're going our own way and we just run into a ditch. And we're like, man, how did I get into this ditch? I don't know, but you're the one driving the car, so I think there's only one person to blame. I can't tell you, you know, how often I talk with people and they found themselves in a place they, they never thought they'd be in. And as we're just kind of deconstructing, working through how they got there, like, we generally don't make a mess of things with, like, one big bad decision. You know, it's usually a bunch of small decisions that we've made over time that just compile and compound and one turn here, one turn there, one turn here, one turn there. And the next thing you know, we're in a place we never thought we'd end up. The good news, friends, is that Jesus never makes a wrong turn. Jesus never makes a wrong turn. I've done things that I regret. None of them come from following Jesus and doing what his word says is best. His way truly is the best way. That doesn't mean that it's the easy way. No, we're going to see as we talk about our need for kingdom power that the only way for us to live for kingdom purposes is to experience the kingdom power in our life. I'm looking forward to talking about that in a couple weeks. But while not easy, living under Jesus' rule, living under as part of his kingdom, let's be very clear, friends. Let's not buy into the lie of Satan. His way really is best. His way really is good. It might seem tempting, like this little choice to live for ourselves over here. Oh, this is going to be a little bit better. And God, your way seems so oppressive. And that seems so outdated. And that seems so anti-cultural. And we bring all of our American ideas and all our self-perceptions into what we think is best and right and true. Friends, that's just taking wrong turn after wrong turn after wrong turn. They'll lead you into ditches that you do not want to go. The way of God truly is the best way. No one has ever followed Jesus and gotten to the end of their life and said, I regret it. We, we, we live his way. You know, there, there's so many things in this world that will say, turn here, this will satisfy you. Give yourself to your career. Follow that above everything, it will satisfy you. Give yourself to chasing money. Follow that above everything, it will satisfy you. Have more education. You, you just need another degree. Then you'll feel satisfied. Go see more places. Treat yourself. Take more vacations. Then you'll feel happy. And so we end up working too much. And we live for the weekend and go on to the next vacation that wasn't as good as we hoped it would be, but we work some more and try to get on the next vacations because hopefully that will lead to what we're looking for. But friends, none of those destinations end up 
leading us to the lasting peace that our souls crave. I've never met, met a lot of people who have a lot of money, have been to a lot of places, and they have no peace. As they're constantly chasing the wind, trying to catch something they think will satisfy them that ends up not delivering what it would. Friends, there's only one who knows the way that we can truly live life abundantly and fully and truly, and it's the one who gave us life. It's the one who made us. Our designer knows how we're designed. He knows what will fulfill us, and he's given us his word to lead us in the way that we are to go that will truly lead to the abundant life he wants each one of us to have. So as we make our way through this series, and as we grow in our understanding of God's kingdom, I've just kind of laid things out a little bit this morning. We've got a lot more work to do. But, but where we're going, friends, is God's inviting us into a lifestyle. He's inviting us into a lifestyle of turning from living to ourselves, for ourselves and for things that won't last and won't fulfill, to instead living for God and following his ways, to being a disciple of Jesus, not a Christian in name only, like we just check off a demographic box, but truly and fully being a disciple, someone who is following Christ imperfectly, but trusting that he is the perfect Savior who will continue to empower us to be the people he's called us to be. Jesus is inviting us to repent, which is not a bad thing. You think about that as a, a bad thing sometimes. No, repentance is a call to turn from death to life. And that's a beautiful and loving and kind thing. And maybe you're hearing that call for the first time today. Maybe you're here and you've never fully put all these pieces together for you. Maybe you've heard the Christian message before, but you really thought, oh, it just means that like, I believe something about Jesus and I live my life however I want. Friends, God has you here because he loves you and because he wants you to know what it truly means for him to be your Lord. The demons believe all kinds of things about Jesus, but they're not living for him. God today is inviting you to live for him, to experience the good of being under his rule and the life that comes from that. And for those of us who have made that decision, who have decided to follow Jesus. Friends, let's be clear. That's not a one-time choice, right? That, that, that's a lifestyle that we need to practice again and again and again, empowered by God's Spirit for the good of our soul and the glory of His name. And so whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, if we're here and we're a follower of Jesus, he, he's, he's calling us to give our hearts, to give our life to Him. And so the question I want you to consider is this. Where are the places or parts of your life where you want Jesus to be in the back seat. Maybe it's a sin that you keep indulging in. Maybe it's a worry that you just keep carrying and won't believe he can actually care for you in. Maybe it's a burden that you just won't let go. Maybe it's be more concerned about what people think than what God says. Maybe it's be more shaped by the culture than God's word. Maybe it's a regret. You doubt that God can forgive. Maybe it's keeping your faith private and not sharing about Jesus when given opportunities to do so. Or maybe you're like me and it's probably some combination of all those things depending on the given day. Friends, those things will eat away our joy and the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have in him. And so our daily prayer should be, Jesus, show me the lesser things that I'm holding on to that I need to give to you. Show me the places in my life where I need to believe what you say instead of what I think or what I feel. Show me how to be the person living in the place of your presence, Jesus. Show me how to follow your will.
for the good of my soul and the glory of your name. And so friends, here's how I think we should respond to this as we consider these things. Here's how I think God in his love wants us to, to close. I believe he wants us to close by bringing our lives before him. By bringing our lives before him. You know, in my um, battle, 30 years battle with Crohn's disease, I've had more surgeries than I can imagine. And, and I love the analogy of a surgeon. And, and a surgeon, you willingly put yourself under their hands and you open yourself up to them. I mean, literally, when I go on that surgical bed, literally my arms are strapped down and my legs are strapped down. It's complete and total vulnerability. Why do I do that? Why do I open myself to a surgeon? Because I trust that his hands that are about to cut are ultimately meant to heal because he has my best interests at heart. And that's a stranger who I'll probably never see again. Well, actually, I do know my surgeons pretty well, sadly. It's like the one person you don't want to know that well, but like I do. Um, friends, God has opened us up this morning. He wants us to open up our lives. Say, don't hold a part of you back. Don't hold a part of you back from my good, loving, scalpel-laden hand. There might be some things that God wants to cut a little bit today, but he's not doing that because he wants to harm you. He's doing that because he wants to heal you. He's doing that because he has your best interest at heart. He's doing that because he loves you. And you know how you can trust that that's true? Because the hands that hold a scalpel are hands that were scarred on the cross where he died in your place for your sins as the ultimate sign of love and his commitment and his care. You wonder if God cares about you, he died for you. And I think we can trust the hand holding the scalpel when it's a hand that bears some scars, some scars of love. And so here's how I believe the Lord wants us to, to close. As we bring our lives before him, we're, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper like we do every single week here. Uh, we do this if you're new to our church. We do this because Jesus said, um, that we, we share this meal, we, we eat bread that's broken, that symbolizes how his body was broken for us. Uh, we drink juice the color of blood, uh, because Jesus said that when we drink this and remember it, we're remembering that his blood was poured out for us on the cross, so that our guilt and shame and sin could be healed. But before we take the Lord's Supper, I, I, I want us to pause just a moment. We do this every single week, but I want to draw attention to what we're doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, it tells us before we take the Lord's Supper, we are to do this. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's why we pause after the sermon. We say, hey, you just heard God's word preached. We want to give people an opportunity to respond to what God said. It's an opportunity for you to interact with the Lord about what you just heard. It's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves. Now, as we're examining ourselves, we're not trying to see if we are worthy. Because none of us are. That's why Jesus came. That's why his blood was spilled. That's why his body was broken. Because we're broken people who deserve our blood to be spilled. We're not worthy. He died because he's worthy. And he died to save us. But what we do when we examine ourselves is we're trying to see, God, is what is unworthy in me that I need to bring to you? <clears throat> that I need, to, I need to, to, to trust you with. That, that I need to confess to you and I need to return and repentance to you about. See, as we do that, as we come to God and examine ourselves, we don't do that so we beat ourselves up. We do that so we can experience the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so friends, as we come to a close, we need to understand that repentance is not about beating ourselves up, but it's about acknowledging our need for God and bringing our life before him and confessing our sin to him and trusting that his love, 
His grace, His goodness in Jesus, proven to us through that bloody cross, can forgive, redeem, rescue, and restore. And so let's just take a moment and all bow our heads. Let's have a time between us and God and consider, where do you need to repent? Because the kingdom of God is here. What is, what is the Lord asking you to give to Him today? Bow your heads and just have a moment of prayer between you and Him. And receive afresh His love poured out for you through His cross.